if you fear something and you avoid it over and over again, that fear gets bigger, right? And so that's one example of just a behavioral principle that's really useful. And that includes the things we fear about failure or letting other people down or, you know, having to acknowledge our humanity, which is very uncomfortable for some of us, right? How can we acknowledge the suffering and moral distress of healthcare professionals and then move beyond the cliches of soothing yet marginally effective self-care techniques towards the use of powerful evidence-based tools and strategies to combat burnout? Let's talk all about it with counseling psychologist, burnout specialist, healthcare consultant, and innovator, Dr. Sandra Shawcross, right here on episode 446 of the Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm always here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, these are my ubiquitous, consistent requests. Consider leaving a rating and review over on Apple, Google Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or Spotify, or just share the show with anyone who you think would find it entertaining or informative. And if you want to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith, as little as $2 a month really helps support the show and helps me continue to keep the lights on and keep the episodes coming to you. And, you know, I just became a supporter of this Jungian Life, which is an amazing podcast that you might want to check out. It's three Jungian psychoanalysts. I just pledged to them to be their patron because it's just such an amazing show. So anyway, Patreon is a great uh, platform. And if you want to support me or other podcasters, go for it. The show notes will be over at nursekeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening. And like I said, at the top of the show, we're here with Dr. Sandra Shawcross. And Sandra, I'm so happy you're here. And we have something really important to talk about, really timely in the aftermath of the the bulk of the COVID-19 pandemic and what we've been through these last few years. And tell me, what is it about sort of the common soothing burnout techniques, you know, kind of combating burnout that just don't quite get to the kernel of what we want to do when a healthcare professional is experiencing burnout? Sure. Well, you know, self-care is kind of a first line of defense for a lot of people and it is necessary. We all need to care for ourselves and have opportunities to rebalance our physiological responses to stress by doing things that are soothing, that are caring toward ourselves. So it's vital, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient ultimately Mm -hmm. because no matter how many times you rebandage a wound, if that wound is infected, you're not going to really heal until you go in and you you clean out the wound and you address the infection. And what happens for a lot of clinicians is that we have challenges that are upstream of 
of the stress response. And so we can't just keep putting band-aids on it. We can't just keep trying to address it by reducing the stress response. We need to look upstream. We need to look at what are the default settings within ourselves that we bring to our work that get us stuck and cause the stress to begin with. So you're saying there there are things that are upstream from the distress and the burnout and what's happening. And, you know, just as an aside, I've been doing a lot of keynotes this year for different nursing organizations. And a lot of them wanted stuff that's sort of like uplifting and that, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of like will help people look at their careers and what they're going through and been through in a different way. And one thing I always say is that, you know, it's great to take baths and light candles and do all the things that are in like the general self-care world out there that people talk about, but there's a, there's some deeper stuff going on. And I think that's what you're getting at as a counseling psychologist. So what's happening upstream in terms of that language that you use, what's going on up there? Right. Yeah. Well, I think before we even really define what's happening upstream, we have to pause. And I always, I always find it's important to really emphasize before diving in with what's happening for each of us as individuals in terms of those default settings that don't work for us. We have to acknowledge first that this is a systemic issue. This is not a personal failing of the individual right? And it's just so important because even though there is growing awareness of the fact that it's the situations that we face in our work lives that give rise to reactivity and stress, you know, a lot of people, they take it on. They feel like there's something that they're doing wrong, or if they see a colleague struggling, they might have trouble really understanding what's going on, understanding it as a natural response to a stressful work environment. And I like to kind of bring up, you know, for a lot of people, it's it's really obvious and, and understandable to think about, well, what happens in a gene affects what happens in a cell, right? Or what happens in a cell affects what happens in a tissue. If there's a tissue that's been injured in some way, all the cells within that tissue can be affected. It doesn't matter how healthy they were to begin with. And that level of interdependence is also present when we go beyond the individual, when we look at individuals within larger organizations. We all live in a way that is deeply influenced by and interdependent with the web of relationships in our lives. And that can mean our families, maybe our medical team, the organizations we work for, the communities we serve, the cultures we're surrounded by, including our professional cultures. And so when we look at this problem of burnout, we have to really understand it as something that happens at the nexus between the organization and the person. And so a lot of us as individuals, we've internalized ideas and ways of being, ways of navigating the world, ways of navigating our professional lives that ultimately cause us more stress. So one typical example of this is just the idea that I think a lot of us would endorse in a lot of ways, the idea of patients come first, right? 
you know, this is an, an, a rule that a lot of people try to live by in their work life, you know, always put the patient first, always make sure their needs are met, no matter what, do what you have to do, go that extra mile, right? Mm -hmm. Make sure they get the care they need. And there's nothing wrong with that aspiration. It's a healthy aspiration. But what happens is we are now all living and working in a system where the defaults, the expectations are pushing people beyond what is sustainable for them. The demands are so high. We're, we've got staffing issues, all kinds of morally distressing kinds of situations that nurses face and other practitioners face. And all of those things really push that that very wholesome, very healthy intention beyond its, its um, usefulness, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I look upstream in the work that I've been doing with clinicians, I see that there are three different ways that people get off track. And I call them the pathways to burnout. So in my work with clinicians, I have found three different pathways to burnout. The first of these is one that a lot of people recognize. I call it the ascending path. It's that pathway of achievement, right? If you're someone who early in life, you find that doing things well, being excellent, accomplishing tasks gives you a sense of satisfaction. Maybe it's a good way of coping with the hard parts of your life. You know, the healthcare system will absolutely make use of that tendency, right? There will be no end of opportunities to be more and more excellent and more and more mm -hmm. perfect at what you do, right? Um, but the problem about that is that because of what we know about how dopamine operates in the brain, the thing that's rewarding about that, that sense of accomplishment over time, people find less and less satisfaction with the status quo. They end up setting higher and higher standards for themselves sometimes. Some people become overcome with a sense of fear of failure. The threat of failure becomes really dominant in their awareness. And so they end up living their lives around this fear of failure. And all of this, when you're working in a healthcare setting where there's no end of tasks that you could do more and more excellently, mm -hmm is a real setup to more stress, more distress down the line. So another pathway to burnout, which I think a lot of folks in nursing will recognize is what I call the caring pathway. So these are often individuals who are very, very focused on connecting with patients. They're, they're people who are good at attuning to what other people need and feel very open-hearted, ready to connect, ready to give, right? And this is a wonderful strength that people bring to their work. But unfortunately, if we don't have proper kind of training and resources in the work setting that we're in, we can get really off track with that. People who are most empathic, most empathically sensitive can be at greatest risk for compassion fatigue over time. And I really appreciate the work of... Um, Frank Ostazeki, he's, he's a Zen hospice practitioner. And he, the way he puts it is you need to have a, a strong back, but a soft front. Hmm. And um, for those of us who are maybe more inclined toward having a soft front, if we haven't learned how to find that balance where we can sit in our own experience, be tuning into ourselves, 
then it's really hard to stay in balance and we end up more prone to depression, more prone to all kinds of downstream effects, right? Including burnout, but all different kinds of reactions. And then the third pathway, I'll just mention briefly, I think this is getting more, there's more dialogue around this recently, thankfully, but I call it the surviving pathway. So it's ordinary for people to be exposed to different forms of trauma and adversity in their lives. And we also know that clinicians are exposed to adversity and, and different forms of trauma in the work that they do, you know, um, whether it's through moral injury or, you know, I know nurses can be at higher risk for verbal assaults, physical assaults from patients. And then there's, there's the history we carry with us from before we ever came to clinical work, you know? And when we adopt a heroic mentality about the work that we do, when we see ourselves as needing to be the resilient ones, needing to be the, the caregivers, the ones who are, who are always able to tough it out and be good team members for our colleagues, we really do ourselves ultimately a disservice because we rely on coping strategies that are about excluding our own needs for healing and our own humanity. Mm-hmm. And that will catch up to you sooner or later. For some people, it it will be in a year. For some, it might be 10 years into your career where you start to realize, oh, this way I've been coping. It doesn't really work. Um, but professional cultures in the medical fields really do pull for people who are, you know, doing things perfectly, endlessly empathic and compassionate and also heroic. And so there's a lot of pressure to keep living into those strengths until we can't do it anymore. Well said. And and doesn't it feed on that? Yeah. Totally yeah. feeds on that. And you know, I'm really, I'm really glad you mentioned the hero narrative because yeah. I was actually I've been working on this article I just submitted to one of my editors. And oh, I was cool. using some some um, research and some scholarly articles out there that talk about the damage of the hero narrative and the angel narrative, because nurses are often referred to as heroes. And that was really big during yeah. the pandemic. And it made me absolutely cringe. Yeah. And then there's yeah. also the, the angel, like there's the angel and the hero. And it's so damaging. And I posted that article on my LinkedIn and so many people have commented on it. So many nurses yes. about how yeah. very damaging it is because it makes us superhuman in the eyes of others. Yeah. And then we feel like we have to live up to that superhumanness. And it's a very hard thing to do. But based on your three pathways, if if we're in a system that rewards that sort of achievement, like you get that dopamine rush, and then you're you're a highly sensitive person and empathic who's highly yeah. attuned to others' needs, and then all the trauma exposure on top of it, I mean, it's a recipe for kind of for disaster, I would think. Right. And yeah, these it's three, amazing. Yeah, and yeah. these three pathways are your own, your own um kind of structure. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the way that I used to help people to understand it, you know, and there, there are sort of threads of this in the literature. And I think by and large, everyone I've spoken with really under, you know, we relate to it immediately. It's like, oh yeah, yeah I recognize these. Right. Mm-hmm. And some people relate more to one pathway 
some people relate to all three to some degree, right? Yeah. Um, but the path back from getting really lost or really out of balance in one of these in one of these dimensions, it it might be different for different clinicians, and that's part of the challenge of working with burnout. It's a, it's not a one size fits all. That's another downside of self care recommendations, right? It's sort of one size fits all. Well, you know, no amount of yoga is going to help me to to re reacquaint myself with my own sense of worthiness and how I, how I need to rethink that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so we need to get more nuanced and more fine grained about how we understand the reactions that people are having and, and what contributes to that for any individual. Right. And in the midst of the kind of the recovery from the, the central pandemic, you know, we still have, you know, COVID's around, but it's like just, it's around and we're just dealing with it. But from, you know, 2020, 2021 into 2022, you know, self-care, there's so many articles about self-care. And like you said, you know, yoga, you know, um, Qigong, like all the things out there that people are talking about, it's all great. And oh, a fantastic. lot of it, yeah. yeah, a lot of it is also quite cookie cutter and, you know, a lot of, I think employers in the healthcare space have integrated some of that, but then again, it can also feel quite cookie cutter and they're not really looking upstream like you're talking about. So right. Right. if self-care, the self-care narrative that we've all been chewing on lately, if that's a partial solution, then where do we go in order to get to like their evidence-based, you know, deeper solutions, which is really the kernel of your work, which I think is really amazing. So can you set us up for what we're going to talk about in the second half? Sure. Yeah. I mean, what we really need to be able to do is first of all, recognize how we've gotten stuck. And as I said, you know, that's going to be particular to different individuals, but we can really empower ourselves and each other to start to notice how have I gotten stuck? How did I get stuck on this rule in my mind? Um, you know, and when I say rules, I mean, you know, this is the downside of having those aspirations. We end up with these rules we derive from those aspirations. Patients must always come first, right? As an example, or if I fail, I'm a bad person or I'm a bad nurse, right? Or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, if I need help, that means I'm weak. There are all of these kinds of rules that we, that we really start to believe in and often in a way that we're not aware of. And I don't know if you've ever, um, if you've ever been fly fishing or if you've ever heard of fly fishing, but um, yeah. it's this remarkable, very artful form of fishing where fly fishers will create these, these lures, these flies that imitate in a very specific way, the insects that trout want to eat. Right. right. And, and then they send out those lures and the trout really believes buys for a second oh, you know, this is really a real insect. So I'm going to bite down. And then before that trout knows it, it's hooked 
is hooked and it can't get away. Mm. And our minds are like that. Our minds are like really terrific fly fishers. They've they create these lures for us that say, you know what? It's just really true that if you need help, you're weak, <laughs> right? And we buy we buy into it and we grab hold of it and we get hooked on it. And, you know, for example, that idea of, you know, um, patients always come first. If somebody's hooked on that, what's going to happen is that they're going to start to develop a sense of, you know, if I let a patient down, that makes me bad or unworthy in some way. They might start to feel feelings of guilt, feelings of fear of letting patients down, or fear of not being enough. And when those feelings take hold, it's really, really hard to break the rules and start to live differently, right? So once somebody starts, once they're hooked, what they often do is they'll try to escape this bad feeling of guilt. And the way they do that is they give even more. They say yes to more. They, they make even more heroic efforts to do everything they can. And the more they do that, the more colleagues and patients learn to expect that of them. Mm -hmm. And the situation starts to become really difficult to change over time. So it's like a trout that's caught on a hook. The more it fights to get away, the more it drives that hook in deeper. Um, so when we have these really unfortunate side effects of our aspirations, our strengths, these unfortunate rules, and we start to try to escape the downsides of the rules, we actually create a way of working, a way of surviving that just makes us more and more stuck over time. And if we want to get unstuck, you know, one, one could look at the situation and say, hey, you just need to have better boundaries, better limits, right? This is advice that's everywhere. Everybody's heard heard this, everybody knows it's a good idea, right? But a typical reaction for me working with a client, a typical reaction I'll hear is, well, yeah, that sounds great. Sign me up. I want to have better limits. Now, how do I do that? Right. 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 And that's where psychologically informed approaches, the behavioral science behind these, these other approaches going beyond self-care really comes in. And that's where we need to start to look at skills like mindfulness and cognitive behavioral approaches that really help people to unhook and free themselves. Well said. I really, really like the metaphor. I've never fly fished, but I totally get the metaphor. Yeah. So when we, we can relate to being hooked, right? Yeah. 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 And when we come back from the break, I want to dig right into that and and a lot more so stay with us we'll be right back for the second half of episode 446 of the nurse keith show with dr sandra shawcross Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Sandra Shawcross. And Sandra, right before the break, you were talking about this um, this metaphor 
of mm-hmm. fly fishing and the fly and the way that we get hooked into these particular behaviors. And I'm totally aware of that myself from my own experience of burnout. And a lot of listeners will be either for themselves or people they've worked with or people they love and care about. And we all know that when you get caught up in that, it can lead to all sorts of things, burnout, compassion, Mm -hmm. fatigue. You can start to feel resentful because everybody's having all these expectations and you, I mean, how can you back down once you've kind of demonstrated this sort of commitment in your career? Like, how can you change, change the way you're behaving? Because then it's, it's so part of your identity. So you were saying right before the break that it's evidence-based, science-based, psychological Mm -hmm. approaches that all the like self-care and soothing techniques and strategies aside, which have their place, not to disparage them. I do them too, but we have to go deeper. So I know you have several strategies and techniques that you use to go deeper in your course and with your clients. So can can you take us down that road a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Well, I think it's helpful to kind of just get a little bit more of the big picture context of what do I mean when I say evidence-based, you know, what does that look like? And when we look at the literature, you know, it's a, it's a newer literature, but it's growing, looking at what actually works for organizations who have really tried to implement effective trainings to empower their clinicians to stay well. And what we find is sort of emerging as a gold standard are really what we can call, uh, it's a little bit of a technical term within psychology, but the term is third wave cognitive behavioral approaches. So what I mean by that is cognitive behavioral ideas have been around for 80 years and they've evolved over that time. And, And we keep what's great about the older methods and we keep expanding and innovating. And, you know, the first wave of CBT included ideas like, you know, essentially what's called radical behaviorism, which really in a practical sense, something people might relate to is just the idea if you fear something and you face it over and over again, that fear gets smaller. If you fear something and you avoid it over and over again, that fear gets bigger, right? And so that's Mm. one example of just a behavioral principle that's really useful. And that includes the things we fear about failure or letting other people down or, you know, having to acknowledge our humanity, which is Mm. very uncomfortable for some of us. Especially when we're seen as superhuman. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and when there's that external pressure, it just compounds it so much. And we take that on and we start pressuring ourselves in that way without even realizing it a lot of the time. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so there's that element of course, to CBT approaches then the second wave of of cognitive behavioral approaches came along and and Aaron Beck and others started to bring in more focus on noticing what are the stories that our minds tell us about you know who we're supposed to be how the world is you know what we can count on what we can 
when can we feel safe or unsafe or when can we feel esteem in ourselves or feel bad about ourselves. Our minds are constantly chattering away at us with this stream of thoughts. And that second wave was really about becoming more aware of the thinking mind and developing a healthy skepticism toward that mind, starting to recognize that, and this is a journey any of us can take ourselves on with practice, starting to recognize that our minds give us all kinds of thoughts all day long, and they are not necessarily true, and they don't necessarily help us or serve us. But if we don't become conscious of them, they will continue to push us around and run our lives. And that's where we get stuck, right? And we feel like there's no way to change uh, how, you know, where we, we don't know how to change. Um, and then the, the third way, which again is the, the format that's been most often tested with regard to burnout has been, you know, keeping all of those important principles from the earlier waves of CBT, but incorporating more tools and strategies to help people to cultivate a healthy acceptance of the things we can't change about our circumstances or the things we can't change about the human condition, which is mm. that we, we don't feel great all the time. We suffer, you know, our hearts break for patient care situations that are heartbreaking, right? That's a part of the deal. How do we make space for that in a way that allows us to stay in touch with our experience and stay present, not shut down, not put up walls, not go into survival mode. How do we do that? Well, we have to cultivate acceptance. And we also have to, um, along with this third wave, there's also a strong emphasis on staying in touch with what's most meaningful to you. And this is the piece of it that I love so much as a counseling psychologist, I've always been so fascinated and interested in the idea that as human beings, we can make meaning out of our experiences, including our most difficult experiences, and just how sustaining that is for us. So connecting with what we care about most, who do we really want to be in our careers is a great question. You know, what kind of a nurse do you really want to be mm -hmm. at the end of the day? What qualities do you want to embody, whatever the situation? Right. So these are all big picture kind of broad strokes of what's happening with uh, with CBT based approaches. So when we're looking at this in the, the third wave, sure. um, it makes yeah. me think of MBSR, mindfulness based stress yeah. reduction yeah. and John Kabat-Zinn yeah. and his yes. work in Worcester, Mass. And his yeah. that first book he wrote of uh, Full Catastrophe Living, which was it was a long time ago. Yeah. He's done a lot more work yeah. since then. And you yeah. sent me a really fascinating article about ACT, um, yeah. which yeah. we don't call ACT, we call it ACT, and it's acceptance and commitment therapy. And this right. is something I find really fascinating. I'm actually going to bring it to therapy myself and talk to my therapist about it because I'm sure he's aware because he's quite cognitively oriented. Um, so there's there are these certain types of evidence-based cognitive approaches. And what I gleaned from the article is that, like you said, we have these thoughts that run and we can repeat them over and over and over again. And we can begin to really identify deeply with them. 
but if we just mm-hmm. sort of set them set them over here and we more like we're more sort of what I got from it is we're witnessing them. And then there are techniques we can use to what I gleaned from this was they're sort of like disempowering them in a sense. So absolutely. Yeah. So act is something that you're seem to be it seems to be central to the work you're doing with clinicians now, right? Yes. And in the past, I've, I've taught and led MBSR courses for clinicians. You know, I think um, MBSR, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, self-compassion training is a newer, much newer fledgling kind of an intervention, but very effective um, from what I've seen. And then ACT is a terrific model because it doesn't require as much intensive kind of dedicated practice time. Uh, when I was starting off in this area, I was part of creating what we called kind of a Cadillac model of resilience training. We had psychologists who taught meditation through MBSR. We had functional medicine docs who came in to talk about, you know, nutrition and well-being. We had integrative PTs teaching yoga. We had this terrific program. And a lot of clinicians just who needed it didn't sign up for it because it's an added time commitment. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are not ready to commit to meditating 30 to 45 minutes a day, which is what is recommended if you want to do the MBSR program. And if you ever if you if you're listening right now and you can and you want to try it, I encourage you to do it because it is effective. But you know, this is part of what got me more interested in creating more innovative, more adaptable trainings as I looked at the landscape of what was happening in healthcare around 2022. Mm-hmm. Having worked in the area for many years, I was just like seeing so many people struggling and so many people who couldn't even get their foot in the door to mm-hmm. do a program like that. And so that's why I really appreciate ACT because it does it it does work in alignment with more meditative third wave approaches, but it doesn't require meditation. You don't have to meditate at all to benefit benefit from ACT and to learn that that quality of being able to witness, as you said, or to be able to see thoughts as thoughts, you know, the, the academic term for it is metacognition, right? Our ability to see thoughts as thoughts rather than rules that we have to live by. Mm-hmm. And ACT gives us a series of different kinds of methods and approaches for going back to that trout image for unhooking ourselves mm-hmm. so that we can actually choose to move in the direction of what we value most, what we care about most. Right. Mm-hmm. And and what I also got from the article and um is about how our thoughts, you know, the stuff that's happening for us cognitively is a private experience. That's what they called it in the article. Right. And yeah. and if we we work so hard to get rid of them. So we mm-hmm. we make our thoughts into symptoms. That's what I understood. Mm-hmm. And then seeing it as a symptom can actually create a a disorder in its own self because then we start to feel like there's it's like we're pathologizing ourselves so you know in the little bit of time we have left let's say let's say i have this pervasive thought that let's see that 
I'm a terrible nurse. I can, I can never do enough. Um, you know, I'm always behind and, um, you know, I'm just, I'm not living up to my standards. So if I'm running a thought like that all the time, what, what does act do for someone who's caught, who who, that's the fly that they've swallowed, let's say the hook. So this is a great question. And one that I think a lot of listeners can probably relate to listeners to your podcast can probably relate to this experience. These kinds of thoughts are really pervasive, whether or not it ever develops into what we would call symptoms. We can all suffer because we have these mental rules that, that um, cause us distress. So the first step is to actually see more clearly that the things we've been doing to try to escape the downsides of those mental rules don't work. So to start to see, you know, when I try to get rid of my stress by, you know, there are all kinds of ways people try to escape their distress and their stress about being a bad nurse or not being good enough, right? One way is to try to overachieve or do way too much, right? Overworking. Another person might escape in a totally different way. They might escape through doing distracting activities that keep them from living their life fully outside of work, or they might escape by actually getting really caught up in resentful thoughts or thoughts about how how terrible the situation is to the point where it's a way of distancing from that internal pain, but you're just creating more suffering, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the first step is to really take a really careful inventory or what are all the ways that this, this thought pattern, this default setting in my mind are causing more problems for me to become disenchanted with it? Because whether or not we would would believe this at the start, most of us keep doing these things because there's something that is rewarding about it, even if it feels just marginally better, the ways that we've been coping with it. And CBT approaches generally are sort of based in this idea of we take some time to really get get to know ourselves, understand how we've gotten stuck, and get disenchanted with what mm-hmm. has gotten us stuck. And, and then from there, being cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I apologize if I'm using this term too, too loosely and it's confusing potentially act is a variety of CBT act mm-hmm. is sort of a, a later. So in act, we would say, yes, the same thing. Act approach is very much based in seeing that, oh, these patterns I've been living in they seem like I'm getting somewhere. It seems like maybe if I just do a little bit more, I'll finally achieve something that proves to me that I'm good enough, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to get this certification going. or that certification. Yes, yeah. or I'm going to get the master's degree or the second master's and the PhD and the DNP, and, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, so, um, it's so convincing. Right, like, in and that we we can invest a lot of our lives into it, and then neglect living living a full life outside of that one objective, which is really about outrunning a sense of unworthiness. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um. So 
another, once we become more disenchanted, then we can get that practice with getting in touch with the present moment, which is something that a lot of the mindfulness-based trainings do. Um, and when we're more in touch with the present moment, we're not in our default mode. So there's a classic study, um, you know, it was published in the journal Science maybe 10, 15 years ago. And it's it's got a great title, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they texted thousands of people at random intervals and they asked them, you know, what are you doing? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Are you focused on what you're doing or is your mind wandering? And how good do you feel in this moment? And what they found was that people who are more in the present moment are happier. They're more content and it doesn't matter. This is true whether or not they're doing something, whether they're doing something negative, something difficult, something unpleasant, something pleasant or something neutral. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when we're in the present moment, we're less caught up in, we're less hooked by our mind. Right. Mm -hmm. So you might learn how to, through meditation or through some other skill or strategy, a, a more accessible brief skill, practice with coming back to the present moment. And the more time you can spend in the present moment, the more you have that option to respond differently and to see that thought as just one thing that's happening in the present moment, not a rule you have to follow, right? right. And you're coming from the, the background of having a doctorate in counseling psychology, and yeah. you've done a fellowship in trauma psychology, and yes. you have really been working for, I think like almost a decade on changing the ways in which healthcare practitioners are trained around these types Mm -hmm. of approaches. And you have something called the Restore Health Academy, and you also have a course called the Joy in Practice course. And tell us a little bit about that and what clinicians might learn if they if they enrolled or if an organization decided they wanted to bring you in to like teach this to clinicians. Yeah. So in um, 2022, you know, I was just looking around and seeing the need for more adaptable approaches, as I mentioned. So I decided to create the Restore Health Academy, which is a virtual online training hub. And we have now rolled out our first comprehensive course for maintaining clinician well-being. And it is a 12-hour course. It's called the Joy in Practice course, as you mentioned. And it's a 12-hour course designed to be completed over the course of four to six months. So it's really something very adaptable. It's not something you're going to do in two weeks, but it's designed to give you several modules to review and your own pace and your own schedule and then implement. And it incorporates a lot of the core elements of those third wave approaches. And really it incorporates the elements that I have learned just through experience of consulting with clinicians one-on-one and in groups, what actually is actionable, you know, what actually works for busy clinicians who have a lot of demands on them and Oftentimes, we didn't talk about this, but 
you know, we talked about self-care isn't sufficient for a lot of us. We have to work with those default settings and those rules to even get to self-care, right? So I tried to make this as approachable, as accessible as possible so that people can really start learning about how to work with their minds in a different way. And it's very comprehensive in terms of its overview of the challenges that are facing clinicians right now. There's a lot of review of organizational strategies, how to dialogue with your organization or work within an organization to move things forward, in addition to that personal work. Mm -hmm. So you're offering a joy in practice course under the um, Restore Health Academy, and this is something clinicians can sign up for independently. It's also something yes. that organizations can decide to offer their clinicians en masse for people who want right. to get involved. And for the Joy in Practice course, you had an offer for listeners of the show. So what did you want to offer? Right. So I want to make an offer for your listeners to join the course and participate for 25% off. And they just need to use the uh, the code NurseKeith25 when they check out. Awesome. Yeah. So they can go to restorehealth.academy, go to the Joy and Practice course, yes. and then use that code NurseKeith25 for 25% off. Thanks. That's awesome. I hope someone will take advantage of it. Me too. Yeah. Is there one little skill, like one little hack that we can introduce right now that listeners can try like yes. today? Is there one yes. little thing we can we yeah. can offer? Yes. So this, the skill I'd like to share is called um, the choice point. Mm -hmm. And this is, was developed and popularized by Russ Harris, who is one of the people who created ACT, uh, one of the co-creators of the ACT approach. And it's based on the idea, because this is behavioral, we want to try to look at our actions as key levers for change. So all of our actions, big actions like, am I going to take this job or not? Little actions like, do I take a breath before I respond to what this patient just said to me? All of those actions, large and small, cumulatively really impact our well-being day to day. And when we're thinking about the choice point, we want to break those actions into two very broad categories. We want to look for what are the things that I do day in, day out, large and small, that are about being the person I truly want to be in my life, embodying the qualities that matter most to me. And we call those towards moves. Now, we all do towards moves all the time, whether we realize it or not. We can overlook this, but we do do towards moves. But there's also a lot of other stuff that we do. We do away moves. We procrastinate. We isolate. We judge ourselves. We judge others. We get irritable. We spend a lot of time scrolling or distracting ourselves instead of truly committing to the life we want for ourselves. So this is very human to do away moves, right? To get caught up in patterns of response, but we don't do it on purpose. We do away moves usually because we're hooked. We're hooked by some kind of an internal belief. We talked a little bit about the ch chatter in the mind today and what that can feel like and look like. Sometimes it's an emotion, like feelings of guilt that we want to 
we want to avoid. And so we do those away moves to outrun our own guilt, or maybe it's a feeling of anger, whatever it is. Sometimes it's an urge, but we have these internal private events, as you mentioned, that are like little hooks that pull us into doing away moves. Hmm. So in practice, what this looks like is I want to invite anyone listening who wants to try this once or twice a day, no big pressure to do it in any particular timeline. Once or twice a day, try to check in with yourself and just ask yourself, am I moving toward or away from the person I want to be right now? Whatever the circumstances, whatever's going on, how am I responding? Am I being the person I want to be in this situation? Am I embodying the values, the qualities, the principles, the aspirations that are most dear to me? And I also, if I, if I can have your indulgence of a, a couple more seconds here to say this, sure. it's really important that when you say who you want to be to yourself, when you're checking in with what you value, that it's completely genuine, that it's not about what anybody else expects you to be. I really love this quote from Howard Thurman, who is an author, theologian, civil rights leader. He says, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you feel more alive and then go do that because mm -hmm. what the world needs is people who have come alive. So that's our, that's our compass. We want to listen for that within ourselves. What makes us feel more alive? And the last piece about the choice point to remember is that every new moment is another choice point. So if you just snapped at somebody and you're feeling really bad about it and you're like, ooh, that was an away move. Mm -hmm. The very next moment is a, a chance to do a towards move to embody those qualities that matter to you most. So this is a quick, doesn't take any time, just a little bit of mental effort and remembering it. And you can do this anytime. I love that. That's really good. I'm going to really work with that one. And I have it on recording so I can listen to you explain <laughs> you it again. Remember. And also the listeners yeah. can too. And you know, yeah. I want to wind down with you. And there's one thing you said in your video that's on the homepage of your website when you're talking about the course and the work that you do. It's a really nice video. It's so well done. So I wanted to compliment you on that. Thank but you. you say in your video how High-performance musicians and athletes have these massive teams of people mm -hmm. who are completely dedicated to helping them perform at the peak of their powers at all times, right? Meanwhile, we have healthcare professionals like the nurses and others who are listening right now who work really hard to keep people healthy, oftentimes actually saving people's lives and we expect them to do this high performance work with pretty much nothing at all. And I'll add yeah. parenthetically, maybe getting a tote bag and a new coffee mug and a pizza party during nurses week. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that leads us to things like the joint practice course, the restore health Academy, the work that you're doing, this cognitive work that you're introducing for people to go deeper, to go underneath where we need to 
you know, the stuff that's really at the kernel, at the core. So I really, really appreciate that. And I'm sure there's people out there who really appreciate it. And I could talk to you forever and we're going to have to have you back so we can talk more, but people can find you at Restore Health Academy and there'll be a link in the show notes. It's restorehealth.academy. And then you're on LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. We'll have that in the show notes as well. But one thing I wanted to um, do is ask you four questions and they have to be rather quick answers, but four questions I ask all of my guests. Are you game for that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So my first question is, how do you define success either personally or professionally? Oh, I define success based on when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the day. Do I feel like I did towards moves? Did I commit to being the person I want to be? And that's the only criterion I use. I like that a lot. Okay. All right. Second question. Could you name or describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead, famous, or someone that none of us would ever have had the chance to meet or know. Oh, that is such (laughs) a good question and hard to choose. Um, no one will be offended. Don't worry. Yeah. You know, the first person who's coming to mind is one of my mentors in, in this space, in the clinician well-being space. And his name is Henry Emmons. Mm -hmm. He's well-known in Minnesota, but not very far beyond. I would say he's written wonderful books about, uh, integrative psychiatry and he's an integrative psychiatrist and just has been a really thoughtful, wise presence in dialogue around these issues. And I think he has a lot of wisdom to share. So I've been grateful to mm. him. How do you spell his last name? Emmons, E-M-M-O-N-S. O-N-S. Yeah. yeah. I mean, having a mentor is invaluable. Even if the yeah. mentor doesn't even know that you're, they're your mentor. Sometimes right. there's just people yeah. out there who we want to emulate and who we learn mm-hmm. from. So that's that's lovely. Okay. Third question, the penultimate question, is there a book or even a movie, and it doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, but just a book or movie that's had an impact on the way you think, the way you live, the way you approach your work, the way you raise your kids, anything like that? Yes, lots of books and movies have have factored in. Um, Based on this conversation, Mm -hmm. I really recommend, uh, I mentioned Russ Harris, I think the happiness trap is a really terrific elaboration of some of the ideas we've been talking about today Hmm. and a a book that's worth reading to understand how, how our minds can play tricks on us and get in our way and how that's optional to be pushed around by our minds. So Hmm. the happiness trap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Goes on the list. Thank Mm -hmm. you. Okay. Last question. Mm -hmm. If you were named queen of the world tomorrow, which I would say is, would be a good idea. So if you, (laughs) Dr. Sandra Shawcross were named queen of the world tomorrow, what's one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your subjects, bearing in mind as queen of the world, you have ultimate power. So you can do everything, but what's one of the first (laughs) things you'd want to do? Uh, Hmm. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think I would, again, 
kind of, I'm just in this mode with the conversation we've been having. Mm -hmm. I would have some kind of a law created that ensures that people have some recovery time in their lives in force, awesome. right? Rather than we just have to all keep going, going, going. And um, I don't know. Now that I'm saying it, I might rethink that, but you can opt in to have a recovery good time. Good yeah. start. Yeah. This ties into one of my things that I've talked about and written about out there in the yeah. ethers of, yeah. you know, academicians get sabbaticals like they get to go off and like they get mm -hmm. their annual pay and they can just sort of like you know go to portugal and you know write a book or whatever for a year and then come back and you know why can't people who actually save lives who work really yeah. really hard yeah. get sabbaticals even like a month you know or two months you know so if you were queen of the world i think we should get universal sabbaticals. I think that's what you're saying. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sandra, this is so wonderful. There's so much more to talk about. And I think we're going to have to do it again at some point in 2024. But yeah, this fantastic. stuff is great. I think ACT is really powerful. I'm definitely going to read more about it because I'm sort of a fan of CBT and cognitive behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. So this is mm -hmm. another place for me to dig in. And yeah. People can find you at restorehealth.academy and they can find that in the show notes. And I really, really appreciate you being here. And I'm so glad we met and that you're out there doing this great work. Thanks for supporting all the clinicians and healthcare professionals out there who need you. Oh, and thanks so much for having me, Keith. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this awesome episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember to go to the show notes wherever you're listening or at nursekeith.com and please pay a visit to restorehealth.academy or connect with Sandra on LinkedIn. It'll be in the show notes and let her know you heard her here on the show. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered for this episode. If you need personalized holistic career coaching, check out Nurse Keith Coaching at nursekeith.com. Mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. And if you'd like to become a patron, like I just did, of the This Jungian Life podcast, hint, hint, um, please consider becoming a patron of the Nurse Keith Show at patreon.com. We are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com, and we are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this, one of my favorite quotes many of you have heard before, but I'm going to say it again by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Sandra Shawcross, saying arrivederci from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you, Sandra. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. <laughs>